Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio on this uh, lovely Tuesday in January. We are certainly looking forward to our guest today, so we uh, we won't have a postscript or a, a news clip for you. We're just going to get into the show. We're really talking to America's manufacturers today. We really want them to hear what our guest, Bob Dorigo Jones, has to say, because many of them have already suffered the slings and arrows of the topic that we're going to discuss. Uh, Bob happens to be a senior fellow at the Center for America. He's the author of the best-selling Remove Child Before Folding, the 101 Stupidest, Silliest, and Wackiest Warning Labels Ever. And we're going to talk about not only wacky warning labels, but the cost to you, the, the American consumer, because these really stupid and silly labels have to be put on products. He's also the host of a new national radio commentary, Let's Be Fair, uh, through which he shares important stories about the impact of crazy lawsuits that we're going to get into today. Um, he's been on many uh, television programs. He's been on the NBC Nightly News, the ABC News 2020, uh, the BBC World News, Fox News, CNBC. And uh, every year in the summer, he's on with John Stossel, and he brings the, the five wackiest labels to the John Stossel show, and then the viewers... Uh, rate the uh, the top three. So, Bob, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, thank you. I have really been looking forward to this interview because I look forward to any chance to talk about how we can uh, reduce the effects of excessive litigation on our families and our communities, but especially your audience, because we have at the Center for America such a long history of working with manufacturers all over the country. Uh, our parent organization was actually founded uh, with the support and leadership of the National Association of Manufacturers about 10 years ago. And today we continue to working with state uh, manufacturing associations and manufacturers on a lot of different projects. So this is a, really a wonderful opportunity for us to talk with uh, you uh, about this issue. Bob, when I first talked to you, I thought maybe you'd been doing this for a couple of years. But you, but you startled me when you said you've been doing it for a lot longer than that. Tell our audience how long you've been doing wacky warning labels. <laughs> right. I thought we'd run out of warning labels that were crazy by now, but this is leading into our 18th year, believe it or not, and uh, it's a, a contest that has been covered in every kind of publication from the Wall Street Journal to the National Enquirer, <laughs> because I think it offers a little something for everybody. It's funny when you talk about warning labels on a product uh, manufactured here, for example, like a, a scooter, the little silver scooters that you're listeners are probably familiar with. You see them in neighborhoods all over America. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look on the handlebar right between the grips, there's actually a warning that says, this product moves when used. <laughs> so <laughs> when you have that kind of humor and you have the serious side, which we love to talk about too, it's, it, they're there because of a very serious reason. It's litigation and any manufacturer is constantly uh, aware that they can be sued at any time, even when they're not responsible for somebody's injury. That's why you see a proliferation of common-sense warning labels in America, unlike anywhere else in the world. 
I'm not sure I'd call them common sense warning labels. There there seems to be an absence of common sense uh, around, and and thus we have these labels. What are some more examples, Bob, of these? I mean, some of these are ridiculous, but uh, give us some more examples of what they are. Some of my favorites, uh, here's a, a warning label that was found on a, a brass fishing lure. I'm talking to you in Michigan today, and these are manufactured by one of the oldest fishing lure manufacturers in the country, uh, Eppinger Fishing Lures. They make the Daredevil Fishing Lure, and on their four-inch long fishing lure with a, a three-hook uh, apparatus dangling off the end, it says, warning, harmful if swallowed. <laughs> you think the fish can read that? <laughs> and uh, one of my other favorites uh, was found on uh, the uh, the book, and we mentioned the title of the book, Remove Child Before Folding. That's actually from a baby stroller. <laughs> Just remarkable. Just remarkable. Now, I have to ask you, Bob, all these warning labels that we've had to put on products, and, and we'll dive into these in terms of cost, are we safer no, there's no advice. As a matter of fact, and this is a very interesting point, I've talked with experts all over the country on this, they believe that we may be less safe because of these warning labels. And here's the reason. As warning labels become longer and longer and more absurd, we're more likely to tune them out. You know, um, one of my running gags is that uh, the three-foot stepladder is an endangered species because it's not long enough to put all the warning labels that you have to put on ladders these days. <laughs> And, and you buy a pen, and it has a booklet of warning labels. Uh, one of the warning labels we found on a pen one says, do not swallow pen cap. And here's the interesting thing about that one, is that uh, the, the pen came with warning labels and instructions in four different languages, English, Spanish, French, and German. And they were all identical except for one thing. The English language instructions and warnings included one extra warning, and that was the do not swallow pen cap. Because the manufacturer knew that in their largest speaking English or English speaking country, America, they had to worry about somebody doing that and suing them, and they didn't have to worry about that in any of the other countries that spoke the other languages. I think sooner or later you're going to run across a warning label that says, Do not choke on contents of warning label. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of another warning label we found. Somebody uh, sent this to us, it was on a tractor, and it says, Warning. Avoid death. Like, you know, that covers just about everything. That could be on any single product in America. <laughs> so I think the, uh, the the warning label writers in that case just threw up their hands and said, you know what, let's just put this on it. How many labels do you go through a year, Bob, to narrow it down to even a handful? <laughs> we get uh, usually between 100 and 200. And sometimes there'll be repeats. Somebody has seen something on the Internet or something like that, and they'll send it in. But um, after getting somewhere around a couple of hundred, what we do is narrow it down to what we believe are the five funniest and related to uh, the issue that we're specifically concerned about, litigation, and we bring those to the TV show. And, and I'd like to mention that there's a lot of warning labels that are funny that we don't use to, to increase um, what I – I, I focus on is, you know, we want this to be a, a contest about getting people to focus on excessive litigation. And when the lawsuit or the warning label doesn't have to do with that, we don't use it. So a bottle of PMS Midol has a funny warning label. It says, do not use if you have an enlarged prostate. Well, 
you don't have to have a medical degree to know that you're not going to have a prostate <laughs> if you're experiencing PMS, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we figure there might be a guy out there with such a bad headache that he's willing to use his wife's PMS Midol, and the effects of Midol on a prostate are not common sense. They're not, you know, basic knowledge that everybody would have. So that warning label, as funny as it is, needs to be there. So we focus on the warning labels, uh, for example, like the, the fishing lure where you know you're not supposed to swallow a four-inch fishing lure. Yeah, right. But they don't have that on the three-inch or the two-inch or the one-inch <laughs> lure? <laughs> uh, I believe you. if you look around, you'll find it on a lot of their lures, yes. Bob, uh, we have a lot of manufacturers listening today, and I'm sure a lot of them have gone through this. What's happening in America that this kind of nonsense has to be, uh, you know, has this kind of impact on our manufacturers? It certainly can't be inexpensive for them. Well, that's right. And um, my work came to the attention of the Center for America because I worked for many years with a manufacturer here in Michigan to get the word out about what's happening. And I'd like to mention her because it's a product that I'm sure all of your listeners are very familiar with, even if they don't know her name, Beth Teamy. She's the president of Amigo Mobility, just outside of Saginaw, Michigan, that created uh, manufacturers right here in Michigan, a wonderful product called the Amigo. And you'll see these three-wheel scooters when you go into your grocery store or a mall or uh, many places of business. And uh, it's a great product used by people who can afford to buy the very best. And I'm talking about people like Colonel Sanders from KFC when he was alive and Itzhak Perlman, the world-renowned violinist, and even Richard Pryor, the comedian. So it's a great product. Uh, they take tremendous care in manufacturing this, but you wouldn't know what a great product it is if you listen to only the personal injury lawyers who sue them time and again. And I'm talking about lawsuits like where somebody might be being lifted in a ramp in their Amigo into a van, and the ramp breaks. Say Amigo, which has, makes, does not make the ramp, would be sued um, along with anybody involved in that accident. So in an in a injury case, what um, many of your listeners might be familiar with is this um, kind of a, a shotgun approach to uh, suing so that the, the car maker would be sued, the, the ramp maker would be sued, uh, the uh, manufacturer of anything that they would be sitting on going up in the ramp would be sued, maybe even the parking lot owner would be sued. And it's because the lawyer's just looking for who has the deep pockets and uh, going for the money, uh, regardless of responsibility. So for many years, getting dragged into lawsuits like that, in lawsuits where people ignored warning labels on their products uh, and suing anyway, for, for example, there's warning labels saying don't take the Amigo into the parking lot. Somebody would ignore that, take it out, and get hit by a car, and then they'd be sued. And so what this all comes down to is a greater willingness by courts to overlook personal responsibility in order to give somebody money who might be injured and might have a very sorry story to tell. But um, the, the problem is that we're getting away from the, uh, the aspect of personal responsibility upon which you know America was built and which is fosters the uh, the greatness of America and encouraging innovators and entrepreneurs and inventors, and that's why we're doing this. Uh, the The interesting thing about this is it's it's not only about the money. Um, of course, manufacturers like Amigo and others spend a lot on lawyers when they're going through these, even when they're eventually dismissed. But it changes the way the manufacturing process happens too. 
uh, Beth would tell me that they would stop making modifications in many cases to their Amigos that they knew would help their customers because they had been sued by people who had asked for modifications before and um, went back on agreements that they wouldn't sue if something happened. So consumers are, are uh, being hurt by this because they're getting fewer products designed specifically for their needs uh, because of the willingness of the courts to allow so many lawsuits to go forward that shouldn't go forward in the first place. Yeah, I think there's kind of a windfall mentality in uh, in America where people want to find some something that's get-rich-quick, and a lawsuit seems to be the pathway to doing that. And I know we've been called you know, a very litigious society, but you've really got some statistics in terms of tort costs in terms of this being a litigious society that you can share with our listeners, Bob? Yes, because it all comes down to, well, what do we do about it? We we know that there's a problem. As a matter of fact, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce did a poll uh, at the last election. They asked people as they left the voting booths, do you believe that litigation in America is a problem? And I'm looking for my statistics right here. It said that um, according to this survey, 83% of voters think that the number of lawsuits in America is a serious problem. And it went across party lines with um, 71% of Democrats saying that and 78% of Republicans. And then independence was even uh, higher. So there is awareness that we do have this problem. So what's, you know, what's the solution? Where do we go? And uh, that's why we, we talk about um, getting involved in, in juries, uh, jury duties and encouraging employers to uh, promote jury service when they're um, they're thinking about you know what policies to have. But the, uh, I don't want to get too far off the top. You asked me about the statistics, and here here is the statistics. So um, when you look at apples to apples, we want to compare the United States to other countries and uh, look at if we're any safer than other countries or more litigious. If we just had the same level of litigation in America that they do in other advanced industrialized countries that we're competing with for jobs and for manufacturing, we would save $589 billion a year. That's a billion with a B. And here's how we get to that. We looked at the percentage of U.S. tort cost as a percent of our gross domestic product. And you can do that in other countries like Germany, Japan, France, German, uh, England, and see what, what their tort costs are as a percentage of their gross domestic product. And in the average for all the, the other countries like that that I mentioned is nine-tenths of 1%. In America, it's 2.2% of GDP. Now, those are relatively small percentages, but when you take it as a part of a huge economy, what that means is that we're double other, what other, those other countries are spending, and we're spending, because of that, $589 billion that we really – shouldn't have to spend money that could be better spent on investment in new jobs and, com- and consumer spending. And that that's real money there, $589 billion. And you have a term for that, do you not, Bob? Yeah, we call it the lawsuit tax, because even though uh, we never see it, we do pay for it, because those costs are passed on to the consumers. So whether you, you're buying a car or insurance or a baby stroller or anything like that, when you look at how much a family of four, what their bite of that $589 billion is, every year, this is a really mind-boggling statistic, 
that number is $7,848. And the reason I like to use this statistic is because we're not saying that you need to get rid of all of lawsuits, and that would be an absurd statement to say we know that there are injuries that are a result of other people's negligence and people need to be held accountable. Uh, we're never going to get rid of the need for litigation. But when you look at the excessive amount of litigation in America, that is what we need to attack and um, put that money to better use. So, you know, if you look at other countries like uh, we mentioned, England, Germany, France, are they less safe than we are here because they don't have so many lawsuits? I think that's what it all comes down to. And the short answer is no. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever to say that Americans are any better off for all our litigation. It's just that we spend more for products, and we're losing products that, uh, from medicines to uh, uh, you know uh, different kinds of uh, car seats. We've noted um, devices that could protect and warn parents when somebody when a child falls into a pool that have been taken off the market because of litigation. So consumers are paying. In money, money-wise, and uh, through loss of the ability to buy products that would make their lives better. Now, this $589 billion, Bob, is that just the payout in lawsuit claims? No, good question. It's the amount of time that, for example, a, a CEO of a small manufacturing company might spend in court, so uh, defending a lawsuit that's eventually dismissed. And... Um, all of the costs, the opportunity costs that are involved. This was research that was done by the Pacific Research Institute in California. So a very respected public policy free enterprise think tank looked at uh, this in a way that had never been looked at before because it, it's a pretty hard number to get your your head around. Is uh, There's so many things involved in going into the cost of litigation. It's not just the lawyers that are hired. It's the amount of time spent away from work. It's um, the lost opportunity of products that are um, that, that never make it to market, and, and so on. And it's it's one reason why, a couple of years ago, there was uh, a, a CEO of one of the largest uh, high tech companies in America. And people might not tend to think of high tech companies as being particularly vulnerable to the litigation issue, and uh, it's. Um, it actually is, and the, the president, the former CEO of Intel, said, because of the uh, excessive liability in America, I quote, the next big thing will not be invented here, unquote. And I think that should all scare us, to think that the, the mm -hmm. CEO of such a respected company would say that because of the problem that we're dealing with here in America, that others don't have to deal with in their countries, that the next big thing will probably be invented somewhere else. And um, that, that just screams for attention of our policymakers to, to get a handle on this so that we continue to uh, encourage innovation that made us such a, uh, an economic power. Yes, if we can get our policymakers to uh, focus on the people and the country instead of their own party, I think we might have a shot at it. <laughs> I agree. The further you get outside of capitals, whether it's the U.S. capital or state capitals, you'll see tremendous support for common-sense legal reforms. 
but the trial lawyers who have so much money to spread around because they're making so much money in all of these lawsuits, and they understand that the game isn't just in the legislatures and in Congress, but in the courts. For many years, manufacturers and other job providers really ignored the courts in when it came to influencing public policy. But uh, that has changed over the past couple of decades as more and more of the, uh, the job providers would realize that they would fight for years trying to get reforms passed in their state legislatures just to see them overturned by the, uh, the courts, usually in the state Supreme Court. So uh, one of the things we focus on is the role that judges play in interpreting the laws and in setting public policy. Now, before we leave this $589 billion figure, Bob, does that also include the cost to the manufacturer of any retooling that they have to do to now adjust for the fact that they've got to deal with some product issue that isn't really an issue? It does, yes. I was very impressed with, with thoroughness of this study, and it, uh, it, it covers all the kinds of costs, that, like the one you just mentioned, that are often ignored in the debate over how much litigation really costs us, because you do have to look at those if you really want to get a true understanding of how much we're spending on this. And where can, is that a public available document, uh, Bob? I believe, yes. As a matter of fact, if, you, um, if your listeners go to Google and just type in Pacific Research Institute and uh, look at the um, – uh, also type in with that um, – let's see, what would another term be? As I, I'm not sure that we have a link to it on our website, but okay. uh, uh, Jackpot Justice, do those. And um, it's a PDF. It's, uh, it's uh, probably 50 pages long with – uh, probably about 10 pages of footnotes and, and sites that that um, give us a credibility that, that I demand when I talk about this issue. And by the way, I would like you to share with our listeners what your website address is, Bob. Oh, yes, thank you. The Center for America, it's um, straightforward, centerforamerica.org. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. And uh, if they go to our website, they can see not only how they could enter the Wacky Warning Label Contest, and listen to some of the stories that we tell about how manufacturers and others are affected by living in the most lawsuit-happy society on Earth. But they can also see some of the other things that we're working on with manufacturers. For example, we work on the American Jobs for American Heroes uh, project, which is designed to pair uh, military veterans who have left military service full-time and are looking for jobs, and we're working with manufacturers to to hook them up. So a lot of uh, good things... uh, that help the economy. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned, and I want to bring up jury duty because a lot of people poo-poo jury duty, and I'll be honest, I, I poo-pooed it as well uh, before I served on a jury. You know, they finally got me, and I had to appear. <laughs> uh, and as I sat on that jury, I realized some of the cases that are brought before the court that the court has to spend their time on is it falls into the stupidest, silliest, and wackiest court cases you might imagine. It's an, a tremendous cost to America to chew up the court's time having to deal with people who, for instance, demand a jury trial in, in a, a, a dog-bite-dog case. 
<laughs> yeah, and that's a t- that's a tough nut to crack because let's be honest, a lot of us will say um, we'll brag about when we're able to get out of jury duty, and I've stopped doing that many years ago, but we we know that it could take a lot of time, and we've got a lot of things going on in our busy lives, and a lot of employers would just assume their employees get out of it. But then they realize if they're ever sued, they need the kind of people that are hardworking, honest people that understand how the economy works and understand these issues being on the jury to to protect justice. So jury duty is a very important part of the solution, and um, uh, we can't uh, encourage jury duty strongly enough. Now, I know there's also an expense to America that kind of falls into the same genre, and that's defensive medicine. Can you explain that to our listeners? Because manufacturers, those who are still paying the premiums for health care policies, are going to be impacted by this. Yes, it's a very good issue to talk about because when we, we talk about litigation, manufacturers will tend to think about product liability litigation, and there's certainly enough about that uh, to, uh, of that to talk about. But anybody who manufactures a product has employees, and um, health costs are a significant uh, portion of, of payroll. And the, uh, the White House did a study about 10 years ago to see how much defensive medicine, which is fueled by litigation because doctors worried about uh, being sued, will order test after test after test, often that are not needed but can be used as evidence in court if they're sued. And the White House determined that if we could eliminate the defensive medicine problem in America, we would save $200 billion a year. So we've, we've you know, done a lot to extend health care in America to people that didn't have that. But unfortunately, policymakers have, have ignored, for, for the most part, solutions to the, the problem of defensive medicine that um, that really should be looked at. And uh, for many years I worked on a, an idea aimed at uh, tackling this problem where you would create, states could create special health courts. You know, we have special courts for tax tribunals and workers' compensation, even maritime law. But some of the most complex issues involve medical cases and injury cases. And we ask uh, juries that have no background in these uh, very often to uh, make decisions about this that that they haven't give, been given enough information on. And uh, one idea would be to take those types of cases out of the regular civil courts and put them into a, a special court that is uh, focused on um, medical issues to to help bring more common sense back to how these are resolved. And um, there's actually been some bipartisan support in Congress for that idea, and hopefully now that there seems to be a renewed sense of at least we need to have bipartisan uh, cooperation to get things done, maybe that has a little bit of a future. Bob, give us a couple more examples uh, of some of the wacky warning labels that you've run across. And uh, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to take a brief break, and then we're going to come back and talk about something like class action lawsuits. But what are some of the other labels that are out there that you've (laughs) been exposed to? Here's one of my other favorites. It's on a hands-free cell phone product called the Drive and Talk Speaker Phone. You know, uh, we all know how uh, dangerous it can be to focus on talking on a cell phone when we're driving, so we've seen more and more speaker phones that you attach to the visor and are aimed at improving 
safety, right? Well, this drive-and-talk speakerphone has a warning label on it that says, never operate your speakerphone while driving. <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of defeating the whole purpose of it. But they know if they don't have that there, they can be sued. Uh, another warning label uh, was found on uh, a little novelty product uh, manufactured in Texas. This is called an off-road commode. Now picture a little toilet seat <laughs> that attaches to the trailer hitch of a truck. And it says, warning, not for use on moving vehicles. <laughs> picture that one. Unless you're constipated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get things running, right? <laughs> so these are the kind of warning labels we see all over America, and people will find them uh, when they buy something and uh, go on our website and Google Wacky Warning Label or Google Center for America, and they can uh, see how that type of a warning label can be worth $1,000. Now, also, Bob, you talked to me about one that you saw on a sled, a flexible flyer sled? Yes, this uh, is great for this time of year in the northern areas where we have a lot of snow. Uh, it said, warning, sled may develop high speed under certain snow conditions. Well, again, that's the whole idea. They'd probably be sued if it didn't. Right, yeah. Kids would attach rockets to the sled. If they could, I know I would have. Right. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back and talk about a couple of things. I want to talk to you, Bob, about Proposition 65 in California. I want to talk to you about some class action lawsuits um, and who gets rich on that get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, but we'll be back after a brief break from Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is Tim Grady, and I'm here with Bob Dorigo jones who's the Senior Fellow for the Center for America. And we're talking about some of these really goofy warning labels that have to end up on products uh, Bob, there is one point I wanted to touch on that we didn't get to before the break, uh, something that's important to the manufacturers who are listening, and that is you can be sued even when you've done nothing wrong. Yes, and that, unfortunately, we see over and over and over again. And we can talk about some examples of that. Um, there was a family-owned company out in, uh, I think it was Arizona, Nevada or Arizona, that made basketball nets. And somebody somehow managed to catch their teeth in a net while they were dunking a basketball and uh, had to deal with a little uh, tooth 
uh, problem there and sued the makers of these basketball nets, claiming they were responsible because they didn't have a warning label on the product. And this this is a case that uh, got that person who sued them $50,000. And, uh, you know, you wonder what, what kind of warning label would prevent a, a lawsuit like that. Uh, warning, uh, do not use for flossing or, you know, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you, you, you can't even um, imagine sometimes uh, the cases. Um, there was another warning label uh, on a Dremel wood router. Great little product. We mm-hmm. A lot of us use them in our shops. And it says, warning, not intended for use as a dental drill. <laughs> and John Stossel had done some research on that. He found out that there was a guy that actually was trying to save some money on his dental bill, so he pulled out the wood router and went to work on his teeth and didn't like the results and sued. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, no. a lot of these cases are eventually dismissed, but they spend the, the people uh, who are sued have to spend so much money defending their uh, their company, their good name, that um, they decide to put a warning label on the products, uh, specifically the, the um, woman who runs the family-owned company that makes the fishing lures told me of the thousands of dollars they had to spend on a lawyer just to get to the point where they put the uh, harmful of swallowed warning label on a, uh, on a fishing lure. <laughs> so we have a slogan where uh, even when you win, you lose. True. Because uh, the majority of these cases will be lost, will be won, but the cost of getting to that point uh, makes manufacturers feel like they certainly haven't won anything by the time they get there. No, that's very true. Uh, we have seen that all over the country with uh, manufacturers who, and and even individuals who are faced with a lawsuit in which they've done nothing wrong, but by the time you're finished defending yourself, you've spent five figures and. If you're a manufacturer, you could easily spend six and sometimes seven, and, and some of those will just plain put you out of business. It's crazy. What's uh, going on? With... Uh, go ahead, Bob. Well, you know, I was just going to mention, if you have uh, a couple minutes, there's a lawsuit that I think illustrates uh, really where we come in our society. Um, a woman who started a, a jewelry business sued a guy who had a, a food pantry. or uh, he, They fed the homeless in Florida, and mm-hmm. his organization's name was Love Your Neighbor, and this woman had uh, her jewelry business was called Love Thy Neighbor, and she wanted the website that the uh, the food shelter had, so the food bank, um, she, so Love Your Neighbor, Love Thy Neighbor was suing Love Your Neighbor, and now that doesn't really have anything to do with manufacturing, but we all, you know, we're all involved in our communities, we all support good causes, and here you had money take, being taken away from this uh valuable service and the uh, we helped this fellow get uh, headlines on that and he eventually attracted a lawyer that gave him a reduced cost but it's still the money that he had to spend could have fed 40,000 people he said and this was a case that was eventually dismissed wow well her headline certainly is the case i mean you often hear some of these cases go as they go into court because it's the first time that they come up and you don't hear necessarily the outcome when they're dismissed but the manufacturer takes a hit on their on their brand and on their name. It's unfortunate. Yes. Bob, what's what's going on with Proposition 65 in California? I know it's already on the books, but the end result of that is some silly stuff, is it not? Yes. Now, this was a, an idea that started with good intentions that went terribly wrong. <laughs> Prop 65 is a law that was passed by, by voter initiative uh, over 20 years ago in California designed to identify products that had 
any kind of chemical in it that might cause cancer and or birth defects in pregnant women. Uh, so it started off with a very noble uh, purpose. The problem is over the years, lawyers uh, would sue over products that had a trace amount of a chemical that uh, could be found in a product and um, force uh, the most ridiculous actions. And I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a fellow in Chicago that makes a kitty litter scooper that has become one of the most popular kitty litter scoopers in America. I don't know exactly what he's done to uh, to perfect the, the scooper, but it's <laughs> sold in all the largest pet stores, and it's actually used when there's an oil spill by volunteers to uh, to take the little uh, oil globs off public beaches. So it's a great little product. Never, ever has anybody been injured in any way about this, but a plaintiff lawyer searching for Prop 65 lawsuits in California had hired somebody to walk through the aisles of a store that sold a whole wide variety of products with uh, some kind of mechanism that could detect these chemicals and products. And um, when they went by the the, uh, kitty litter scooper, the little device registered a sound, and um, they pulled the kitty litter scooper up and found it had a very small amount of one of these chemicals. There's about 200 of these chemicals. Actually, anybody that sells coffee in California has to have a warning label because all coffee contains one of these chemicals. That's how common the chemicals on this list are. Um, if you go to Walt Disneyland, you'll see warning labels uh, all all over about this. It's, it's become absurd. So anyway, uh, this lawyer decided to sue this small business manufacturer in um, in Chicago, and even though nobody had ever complained about the product, nobody had ever had any kind of injury whatsoever. And uh, we, when we contacted him, he was going through this lawsuit and said he was afraid of that he would be put out of business because of this lawsuit. It's uh, a warning label that um, under the the uh, fine print of the law probably should have been there, but um, if you're trying to protect people and ensure public safety, it really is not accomplishing its purpose and it was only hurting somebody that was doing, providing a valuable product to people. So that's a, a case where you have no injuries and uh, a business being threatened to go out of business because of a lawyer simply searching for a lawsuit to make a fee so they can sue more people. And I know that you also mentioned a uh, an extension cord, and my bet it would also be on a garden hose. What was the extension cord? Yes, you're right. Well, if anybody uses the little brown or white extension cords, they're so common when you go to a, a hardware store, Look closely on that, and uh, it'll probably say, warning, wash hands after using, (laughs) because the plastic that is used to make extension cords has one of these chemicals. And while I'll I'll challenge anybody to say that they wash their hands after they use their extension cords, uh, you won't. You, You just don't find people doing that. You don't have to. That's the point. But the manufacturer knows that if they didn't put that warning label there, they could be sued like this poor fellow out of Chicago. That's that's just awful. I know a lot of the cords that kids use today that we use as adults that come from our cell phones, whether it's the charging cord or the cords that go to the, the headsets or the earphones, uh, some of those cords contain trace amounts of lead, which is what makes them flexible. 
Right, you're right. And actually, um, I know one of the things you want to talk about is class action lawsuits, and that kind of could be a segue into talking about um, class action lawsuits that really benefit nobody but the lawyers who file these lawsuits. And the reason I thought of that is because of litigation against Apple. There's a company that we all are familiar with that has been sued over its headsets and uh, in the volume. Um, There is a warning label on one of my favorite products that became popular when Bluetooth uh, started to uh, come to America. And it's a little wireless headset. People will often use them when they're playing video games on the computer or on the TV. And the warning label says, warning, uh, this product will make it harder to hear other things when being worn. Uh, which basically <laughs> says, well, you've got two things that amount to earmuffs on your ears. You're going to be able to hear what you're playing, but it's going to be harder to hear everything else in the room. And um, Apple was sued over just that, and uh, the class action lawyers uh, received millions of dollars, and Apple wound up putting uh, a little warning label on it that really wasn't necessary in the first place. So class action litigation has become a huge cottage industry in America, and it has uh, been allowed to foster because um, a lot of times these lawsuits will in, will include in the beneficiaries organizations that have no kind of tie-in to the case, but they sound good. They're charities that um, could use money, and judges uh, approve this. And by allowing charities to receive some of the money, it inflates the trial lawyer's fees, giving them incentive to file even more class action lawsuits. Uh, t- speaking of Apple, again, Apple is a magnet for these because they make so much money. They had a policy where if you dropped your iPod or iPhone into water and it broke, that that was not covered by their warranty. That happened to me, as a matter of fact. Uh, my youngest son dropped his iPod in some water and stopped working. We took it to Apple to see if it could be fixed. And they said no, and I just figured, well, it's one of those things that happens in life. It's a life lesson for him. Be more careful right. with your electronic devices, right? But uh, a couple of years after that, I got a check in the mail from Apple for close to $200. They had been sued because some lawyer somewhere wasn't uh, happy with that policy saying that you should be responsible when you drop something in water, and they sued them saying that their policy was wrong. So um, that is a, a class action lawsuit that resulted in significant money going to consumers. Some people got up to $300. But it goes against our sense of fairness and is is the type of thing that we really need to get a handle on in America because class action lawsuits are becoming a, a real big problem from for any manufacturer from large ones like Apple uh, to smaller ones. And uh, it, it's real money, very, very big amounts. We're talking hundreds of millions. No, it's very true, Bob. And last year I received postcards in the mail, which usually is how you get your notice that you're a member of a class. I didn't even know I was a member of a class. One was with a credit card company. One was with a uh, a power company. And they were saying that I had to respond to this to uh, get an opportunity to get the award. Otherwise, I'd be dropped from the class. 
Uh, and then I found out later when they sent out the second notice that you now had to apply for the award that my award was a dollar and fifty seven cents. And I said, you're wasting everybody's time, including mine and the courts and you know, life in general, pursuing these ridiculous lawsuits for a benefit to a consumer that you know, oftentimes it's a, a coupon that you get, which means you have to spend more money to use the coupon. You gain nothing. <laughs> That's right. And you raise a good point. We, we get these cards in the mail, and sometimes we treat them as junk mail. I never saw the card that made me a part of the class action lawsuit. Otherwise, I would have uh, denied being part of this. I wanted nothing to do with this lawsuit. And actually, uh, we'll get checks every once in a while from somebody that uh, was part of a class action lawsuit, and they were so mad that they got a check that they sent it to us to say, we want you to use this to fight litigation, uh, excessive litigation in America. People know that this is a scam, and – it's the type of thing that will continue to perpetuate as long as there's a financial incentive for the lawyers. So I'm actually one of the guys I interviewed that, for a, a video piece that appeared on PBS all throughout the country was a lawyer by the name of, name of Ted Frank. And Ted has created a, uh, an organization called the Center for Class Action Fairness. And what he does is he fights these class action lawsuits when they provide these little coupons and pennies, and uh, on the reverse side, give the lawyers millions of dollars. So I think economically he's trying to get at this because the public policymakers haven't been able to address it. And I think he's making headway. And um, I think if any of your listeners get a a card where they're a member of a class action lawsuit, uh, they could go to Google or Center for Class Action Fairness and see how they might be able to work with him to discourage this type of abuse. Yeah, it, it's really crazy that uh, lawyers pursue these kinds of things. And I, I realize, look, they're out to make a buck, but uh, a, a fair buck would be a, a reasonable buck. And when we're talking about fairness, I, I appreciate you being on our show. Let me talk for a moment about your uh, new national radio commentary, Let's Be Fair. Um, what are you covering in your show? We cover everything from Little little League Baseball to Girl Scouts to uh, stories about uh, a CEO of a company who suggested settling a dispute by arm wrestling rather than filing a lawsuit. (laughs) And I love these. (laughs) It's kind of like a Paul Harvey does lawsuit uh, awareness. And what we do is we try to tell a story every week. It's only one minute long. And your listeners can go to our website, which is centerforamerica.org, and listen to some of these stories because we provide the evidence that's needed to to show how we are all paying and how we're all affected. In one commentary, we talked about a woman who actually stopped giving CPR to somebody in her office who was um, having a heart attack because a supervisor warned her that if it went wrong, that they could be sued. This... this, uh, spread of litigation fear is really becoming the the chief problem it's the fear of being sued now not necessarily the lawsuit that's changing america um just the threat of being sued can can force somebody to do something that's totally irrational like stopping saving somebody's life now whether they would be sued or not is a whole different matter but the the awareness that they could be sued is changing people's behavior. Um, I mentioned the Little League of America. When I first got into this issue, 
the uh, CEO of Little League of America told me that they spend more money on liability insurance to protect itself from lawsuits mm-hmm. than they do on any other item in their budget, bats, balls, and gloves combined. So yeah, isn't I that, can, I mean, that's, that's a sad statement on where we are in America today, I think. That, that is tragic. That is tragic. Now, I know you also had some figures on uh, class action lawsuits and the actual percent of dollars that ends up going to the class members. And to me, it was astonishingly low. Can you share that with our listeners, Bob? Boy, I'm looking for that statistic, and I'm a stickler on making sure I have the right statistics. And I can't find that one in front of me, but um, it was uh, – you don't have that in front of you, do you? Well, I think it was <laughs> something like 15% or less actually yes. of, the, of the money actually went to the class members, and 85% or more ended up going to the lawyers who brought the suit. Yes, and I wasn't sure if it was under 20%, and you're right, it's 15%. So all of this money that's being spent isn't going to the people that deserve it. And, that, and actually, that brings up another point is even somebody that has a legitimate lawsuit in America today, because the system has become so inefficient, they tend to walk out with, in many cases, less than half the money that they win because the, the, their own lawyer – and the uh, the lawyers um, that are fighting them are making the majority of the money. So we'll often talk to people that had legitimate lawsuits that call us because they're mad at their own lawyer for taking so much money. Uh, so the only ones getting rich off the system are the lawyers that are filing these lawsuits. And that goes totally against what some of the top judges throughout the history of America have said. As a matter of fact, I'm doing my commentary this week and a respected federal judge, his name was Learned Hand, one of the great names, I think, in law, went to uh, <laughs> Harvard, and his name was actually Learned Hand. And he said that, um, that um, we should uh, avoid lawsuits short of anything uh, like sickness or death. And um, the... The point is that it hasn't been until the last 20 or 30 years that litigation at this level was even tolerated by our society. Uh, it, was, it, it would have been um, an embarrassment for somebody to trip over their shoelaces when running through a park and then sue the shoemaker saying that the shoelaces were too long. But that has actually happened, uh, too. Oh, <laughs> so um, we're, we're getting away from ideals that have been cherished in America for many years um, because of the the inability of judges to serve their role as a gatekeeper to the courts. So we we talk a lot about what are the solutions, and one of the big ones is a greater awareness of the role that judges play in getting a handle on this because um, some people might suggest or uh, suspect that a lawsuit that gets tossed out of court, say in Texas, might see its day and go for months or years in a court in New York, and that's exactly what happens. So we have to get away from this arbitrary notion of justice, depending on where where you are, what jury you might happen to get, or what judge you might happen to get, to uh, a more across-the-board rules for justice that uh, people can rely on. And is there anything that a manufacturer can do, Bob, to protect themselves from these lawsuits? I mean, is there a generic warning label, 
that says this product may be dangerous if if used in any purpose other than its intended purpose? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, Warning labels do need to be there today for protection, and there's not a generic version, but if if an accident can be foreseeable, that's generally the rule of thumb uh, that's used to to apply uh, negligence or um, uh, damages to a manufacturer. But here's one thing I like to mention, and we don't often get enough time in the interview, so I'm glad we have time today, is when, when somebody is sued, they do have options. You do not have to go straight to court. Now, um, I like to encourage job providers to to tell the judge or their own lawyer that they would like to go to mediation. Most places in America will allow a judge to tell somebody who sues somebody to try mediation first. And I want to make an important distinction. I'm talking about what is called facilitative mediation, not court-appointed mediation. And there's a, a strong distinction because many courts today are required to try to mediate something before it goes all the way to the judge or the jury. Facilitative mediation are organizations that are created with money that comes from fees on all the lawsuits we file against one another throughout the year. And you go in, it costs sometimes less than 100 or $200, and it has a success rate of almost 90%. And, mm, wow. uh, yeah, so you, you, uh, you get before, and you don't have to, you can't even bring a judge and a lot of these, or a lawyer to represent you in a lot of these cases. And mediators are trained with money that we're spending on lawsuits, or the people who file lawsuits are trained to help people arrive at a solution that's mutually beneficial and has uh, is rooted in fairness. And very few people relatively use this today because they're simply not aware of it. So um, if you're sued, you can you can ask the judge to, to um, order that it be gone to or be sent to facilitative mediation first to give it a try where there are no lawyers involved. If it's one of the uh, times that it can't be used, it goes back to court. But the judge then knows that you felt so strongly about your case that you were willing to let an independent, objective mediator uh, help you arrive at a solution. And I think that is uh, a very positive development that needs to be promoted more because litigation costs so much money. Like we've talked about, even if you arrive at the solution you eventually want and the case is dismissed, you could still lose your life life savings. And... um, uh, mediation could be used in a whole variety of cases, uh, including big dollar amounts. And I understand if I, if, and, and I am not a lawyer, but if I understand uh, law discussions that have been around me over the years, that anything that comes out in mediation, in mediation cannot be used for or against you in a court of law. It's sealed. Right. So uh, there's a there's a high degree of confidence that you can have going into this that um, that you can be you know open and honest with the proceedings and i hate to say it but in a lot of cases that are filed by the trial lawyers they're looking for the quick hit the the lawsuit lottery type of a case they don't want what's uh, what's fair and honest they just want the the use of um, the, the this heavy weight of the court system bearing down on somebody who's been sued as a hammer to get them to settle Here's another very little-known fact in America today. Nine out of ten cases, lawsuits that are filed, are settled out of court. 
And uh, there's one, one, two conclusions that you can have. One is that um, even the people that are sued um, who are responsible want to settle so that the, they're not backed into a bigger uh, award by a jury. But the problem is that research is finding that these cases are settled simply because of the need to avoid the cost of defending oneself in litigation. And that really uh, says a lot about our society today. As a matter of fact, the one lawsuit everybody's familiar with is the, the spilled coffee lawsuit against McDonald's. Right. Well, they probably haven't heard about the spilled milkshake lawsuit against McDonald's. And oh, I like no. to bring this up because um, you, we can argue about how hot coffee should be, but nobody can argue about whether a milkshake is too cold. The guy went through a <laughs> drive through got a milkshake, put it between his legs, put his French fries in, in the seat next to him. When he got to a stoplight, reached over for the French fries and squeezed his legs together as he was reaching over. The milkshake pops out, hits him in the lap. He's startled. He accelerates the car and hits the car in front of him. So who did the guy in front of him sue? The guy that hit him? No, he sued McDonald's for not warning their customers about the dangers of driving with a milkshake between your legs. And that's a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of that state and was eventually dismissed. But, uh, the you know, the... The people that were sued, the McDonald's, didn't feel like they won that case because of all the money spent on lawyers. I'm sure. And when they're talking about tort reform in America, this is what they're talking about. <laughs> Some of this stuff is ludicrous. Bob, we've just got a couple of minutes left here. And uh, if you've got a couple of sh- uh, other short labels you'd like to share with our listeners, we sure would love to hear them. Here's a good one. And this is on a, a common dust mask. Uh, it's a type you can buy 10 for maybe a couple bucks at a, a hardware store. It says, warning, does not supply oxygen. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> here's here's a, uh, a warning label. This was found last year by a guy in Buffalo, New York, and uh, it was on a, a sheet of decals for bike helmet or skateboard the Buffalo Bills would uh, send these out to um, their fans as a little little gift. But printed on this sheet of peel-and-stick decals, it says, Warning, decals are for decoration only and will not prevent bodily harm or injury. <laughs> so <laughs> if you fall down with one of these decals on your helmet and you get hurt, you can't sue them. But they need that there, they feel. Yeah, don't stick it on your forehead and run into a tree. Uh, Bob, we we certainly appreciated you having having you had on been on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, we'll follow up. We'll we'll follow up with you later in the year just to uh, uh, see if anything interesting has popped up. Thanks for being on the show, Bob. Okay, thanks, and everybody out there, look for that one thousand dollar grand prize winner and go to our website, uh, centerforamerica.org. Absolutely. We want to get uh, lots of entries into Bob. Uh, we certainly invite all of our manufacturers to to uh, send in these stories they have. You can send them to uh, info at mfgtalkradio.com, and we'll go over them and uh, review some with Bob and have another discussion with him later in the year. And uh, And we've enjoyed having him on the show. This is a great topic to review again, and we'd love to hear from any of our manufacturers out there who've got great stories to tell. Uh, either uh, the slings and arrows they've suffered or labels they've had to put on a product. But thank you for listening today with Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we'll be back with you next Tuesday. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast 
each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.